So where I want to pick up this week as we bring this year into the land, because next Sunday, the 23rd, is our Christmas service. Um, in case you don't know, we don't have a service on Christmas Day because we want you to be with your families and celebrate on Christmas Day. And next Sunday, 4 o'clock, normal time, we'll be meeting here. Um, in fact, if you come earlier at 3.30 and go into the room next door, there'll be food there beforehand. So that is a, a slight motivation for you to come a little earlier because there will be food there um, and we will be having a really cool, fun Christmas celebration together as a family, which we will very much look forward to. So this is kind of my last chance to, to talk into us um, this year and I'm not going anywhere near a Christmas theme. Um, if you don't know me well, I'm really bad at keeping to seasonal themes um, quite often. Next Sunday, I promise I'll try. <laughs> promise I will try. This Sunday, um, I want to finish off um, where we left off last week and, and kind of bring that whole, um, th- this whole subject area into land in some kind of way. Um, if you weren't here last week or any of the last few weeks, can I encourage you to get a hold of the podcast because they're all kind of building on each other, um, particularly if you weren't here when Amy was here. Um, a few weeks ago, um, that was an absolute cracker, um, and that really set us up for the journey we've been on in the last couple of weeks. Um, last week, I talked about the concept of what wars against love and the, the vows and the judgments that we make because of painful experiences in our heart end up that they help us survive in the short term, but in the long term, they end up warring against love and the expression of love in us and through us. So this week, where I want to pick up on is this concept of the will. I'll talk about what that is in a moment. The will vows judgments and a healthy father. Now, if you have no idea how I'm going to piece all of that together, just hang in for the journey because it's not that hard to to piece all of that together. Um, So I want to talk about the will to start with. And and firstly, what, what is our will? Well, our will is simply, and it's not just this because... Let me answer the question first, and then I'll say the because. Our will is our ability to choose. It's our ability to self-direct. So when we talk about the will of God, we talk about the, the desires, the choices of God. When I talk about my will, I'm talking about my own ability to choose, my volitional ability. Now, we often try and separate mind, will, and emotions as if they're completely separate, but actually you can't because we think emotionally before we think cognitively. It's actually the way that your brain is wired, whether you know it or not. Every, um, every stimulus passes through an emotional gate in your brain before it passes through a cognitive rational one. So a lot of the things that we think are logical are actually fired up by a whole lot of emotion that sits underneath it. And when people say, well, just have a different thought, it's not always easy unless you engage the emotion behind the thought. Was that too deep for this time of the afternoon? <laughs> Is that right? Okay, so we think emotionally and we choose emotionally. Like we actually behave out of our emotions. That's another subject, but, but we, we, we behave out of our emotions. So any treatment of the will that doesn't understand that we are a whole person and our mind, our will and our emotions, all that they can't be just completely separated out and dealt with in isolation because all of them, each affects the other and each interplays with the other. We happy with that? I could talk much more about that, but I want to talk about the importance of our will being engaged. 
And I want to start looking at a couple of Jesus stories, which, I mean, if you don't know where to go, it's always good to start with a couple of Jesus stories, right? But I did have an idea of where to go. Um, In John chapter 1, verses 35 through to a few verses after that, um, this is really early in Jesus' ministry. And this is before he's actually met all of the dudes who would become his disciples. And he meets Andrew and one other dude. Dude is a very biblical word, by the way. It's, it's somewhere in my Bible. I think I wrote it in by hand, but it is in there. Um, so verse 35 of John 1. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, so they start following him. Jesus turns around and asks them, what do you want? Strange question. Even stranger answer. Because if you, if you have a look at it, they didn't actually answer the question. They just said, oh, where are you staying? It's almost like when, you, when, when God asks you a question and you don't know the answer, you reply with another question just to buy yourself a little bit of time. And it's almost like Jesus says to them, what do you want? And they didn't have an answer. But the fact that Jesus asked them, what do you want? Says, I'm wanting to engage your desires. I'm wanting to engage your will in whatever process that we're going to do. Now, they've already followed, they've already started following him. So it's almost like, well, why are you asking that? Like, we want to follow you. But he still turned around, looks at him and says, what do you want? And I think I've asked this question of us before. If Jesus stood in front of you right now and said, what do you want? Would you have an answer? Because I want what you want, O Lord, while it sounds really good and spiritual, is actually a sign of a checked out will. More on that later. I'm just going to leave that statement just hanging out there. Mark chapter 10. Further on in Jesus' life, but backwards in the Bible. So if you're following along, turn left. If you've got an iPhone or an app or something, then it just doesn't matter. You just find it. Um, This is the story of blind Bartimaeus. Now, this guy is so blind, even his name is blind. Okay, that's a dad joke in case you didn't get it. Blind Bartimaeus is what he's called, his name. Oh, come on. Work with me. Give me something. Lay hands on me, Jonathan. (laughs) I'm willing to receive an impartation here. So this is Mark chapter 10, verse 46. Uh, Then they came to Jericho, and Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. And here is this question. Jesus says, verse 51, What do you want me to do for you? Now, I don't know about you, but to me, the answer to that question is profoundly obvious. There's a blind guy begging by the side of the road, screaming out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Isn't it really obvious? Is it just me or is it obvious to you too? Okay, this is the bit where if you want to interact, feel free. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. To me, it's pretty obvious that he wants to see. 
And back in those days, being blind was considered a curse from God, that someone had sinned, someone had done something wrong. Um, and you were essentially an outcast. It's not like he kind of went home to a nice cosy cabin at night and did his thing. Like he had no, form, no way of earning income, no way of providing for himself. And that just makes it all the more obvious, duh, like I want to see. And yet Jesus still turns and asks him the question, what do you want me to do for you? Why? Because our will being engaged with what God is doing means something. And my guess is Jesus wanted the words to come out of his own mouth. I want to see. Now, if you think about it for a second, once those words come out of Bartimaeus' mouth, he's already made quite a spectacle of himself. Like if you can imagine the crowd, like he's there calling out and all of the crowd around him are going, dude, shut up, you're an embarrassment. And all that's doing, I mean, if any of you have had kids that have ever done something like this, you'll understand what this is like. And the more you go, the louder they get. This, this is what he's doing. This is how he's playing it out, right? But Jesus wants the words to come out of his mouth. It puts him in a vulnerable position, though, because as I said, the moment that comes out of his mouth, he's expressed a need. And so the potential for rejection now has gone up really significantly. Because at this point, Jesus could go, yeah, no, I don't think the Father's doing that today. I think he wants me to take up an offering or something. <laughs> but did you see, it puts him in quite a vulnerable position once a need has been expressed. So if he wasn't already vulnerable, he was even more vulnerable now. But Jesus was pulling him into a place where his will was fully engaged. And he says, sir, I want to see. Or rabbi, I want to see. And then Jesus says, go, your faith has healed you. Now, notice, you know, now if we were telling this story, we'd be saying, well, Jesus healed him. And depending on which Bible you have, um, mine says blind Bartimaeus receives his sight. There's a heading above that, and I often find those headings really, really useless. Another subject. Um, but in some of your Bibles, it might say Jesus heals blind Bartimaeus. But it's actually not what the text says. Jesus actually said to blind Bartimaeus, your faith has made you, or has healed you. And then it says immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. So that engagement of Bartimaeus' will with the activity of God was what brought about his healing. So, so far we've had Andrew saying, and Jesus turning to him and saying, what do you want? His only answer was, well, where, where are you staying? <laughs> and it kind of worked out okay because they end up going to where Jesus was and hung out with him for a day and you know the rest of the story plays out fairly well um, for the next couple of years with them. But he didn't know the answer. And then we have Bartimaeus and Jesus saying, what do you want me to do for you? Now we go to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is just as Jesus is about to be led off to, be, to start that process of crucifixion. Matthew 26, which again is forward in Jesus' life, but backwards in the Bible. So turn left. Matthew 26, verse 36. Now this is a really well-known passage of Scripture and many of us probably will have prayed this, the, the, the prayer that Jesus prayed here. So when Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. 
He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and he began to be, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said, my soul is overwhelmed, sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet, and this is the bit that many of us will have prayed at some point in our life. Yet not as I will, but as you will. In other words, but not my will, but yours be done. Now, what we often think that that means is that we live a life where we don't have a will and we're in this constant search for, well, what is the Father's will? What is God's will? Now, I'm a big fan of searching for God's will on stuff, okay? Just in case you're wondering where I'm going with this, big fan of that whole thing. But there's something that needs to be engaged in the process. So Jesus praying that prayer was not in the absence of his will. Because we saw his will in the previous verse. He said, Father, if this cup can be taken from me, that was Jesus in his earthly state. That was Jesus' will, that this cup would be taken from me. There's will engaged, part one. Then his will being engaged, part two, knowing the grander plan, because he and the Father had been scheming this since the beginning of time. The yet not my will, but yours be done was actually a choice of his will to say in this case, even though our wills are at loggerheads, I'm surrendering to a bigger plan because actually we came up with this together in eternity. This wasn't the absence of a will. So for Jesus to say, not my will, but yours be done, he actually had to have a will. Making sense? Okay. Let me build a little bit more and then you'll see where I'm trying to take this. The fact that we were created with a will is evidenced by going right back to the Garden of Eden. How many trees were there in the garden of significance? Two. One was what? Okay, I've heard them both. So it's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Are you sure you didn't say anything? Was that, that was, that was you Okay, so it, just, it came from that direction. <laughs> um, you have a very young voice, Janine. Yeah, I thought you'd like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the second tree was the tree of life. Now, the tree of life was the one that they could eat from the whole time. The tree of knowledge of good and evil was there, was put there by God. But yet they were told not to eat of it. Why would God put in front of them something? To me, that's like saying to me, here is a massive bowl of dark chocolate and just putting it down in front of me and going, but don't you eat that. Like that's entrapment, right? (laughs) That is, thank you. It is very true. Why would God do that? Why would God put in front of Adam and Eve this thing and say, hey, don't touch that? Either he's really, really cruel or 
he has a very high value for freedom. See, if that tree of knowledge of good and evil wasn't there, there was no option for mankind not to follow God. So God places in the garden the presence of a bad choice to ensure that his creation is always free. Free people have options. So freedom is such a high value in heaven that God creates the presence of a bad choice. Now, Michael, well, when we get to heaven, all the bad choices will be gone. Now, I don't know how this is going to work, but all I know is there are two people that have found a bad choice in a perfect environment. One was Adam, which we're talking about here. The other was Lucifer. He was in a perfect environment. He was the covering cherub. He was the worship leader in heaven, and he managed to find a bad choice. So freedom is such a high value item in heaven, in other words, and freedom doesn't exist unless we have a will. Yeah? Okay. Because if I am willless, I am at the mercy of somebody else's will, and that is slavery. That's not freedom. Add to that, we are created in the image and likeness of God, and we know God has a will because we talk about it all the time. What is the will of God in this matter? What is the will of God as revealed in Scripture? I'm just praying to really know what the will of God is for my life. We know that God has a will. We talk about it all the time. But if we're made in his image and likeness, that means we have to have one too. Now, where am I going with this? Somewhere in this journey of being a Christian as the Western church, we develop this idea, and we probably would never say it out loud, but I just I, I see it all the time. I see it when we're doing prayer ministry. I, I hear it in conversations that, that in some way being a Christian means being willless. And I'm a puppet, essentially, of God. Now that sounds like, well, that's a good thing because he leads and I follow and there's this lordship thing, and, but there's something missing in there. And, and you know, at its worst expression, we can't even go and buy toilet paper without going, Lord, which toilet paper should I buy? What is your will in this matter? Now, for some reason, every joke I have has to find its way to the latrine at some point. And I'm here, I'm there now, so I'm going to stick with it for a moment. Um, so how many of you have, are parents that have adult children? There's a few of you in the room. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. I want you to imagine you're sitting at home over your cup of tea. Your kids have moved out of home, possibly even have their own kids. <laughs> Did I hear a yes before time there, Stephen? <laughs> it's all right. You can move in with us. We'll have you. <laughs> They've moved out of home. You're sitting there with your cup of tea, just enjoying your silence. The phone rings. Mum, Dad, just need some help with a the decision. There's the sorbent and there's the Kleenex. And I really don't know which one I should buy. What, what is your will in this matter? Or 
any decision for that matter, if you're, uh, you who are parents of adult children, if, all, if every time they had to make a decision, they were on the phone to you and going, what should I do? What, what would you call that? I'd call that codependency. I'd call it annoying. <laughs> I'd call it dysfunctional. Like there would be something in my parenting that has not prepared them for life to actually be an adult, to have their own will. And we would typically call that codependent. We would typically call that dysfunctional. In fact, I believe one of the greatest joys of a parent is to actually see your kids raised, carrying the values that they were raised with, but able to make their own decisions and self-direct around that. In other words, to self-govern. That's what an adult does is they self-govern. Yet we've got this idea that it is healthy as a Christian in our relationship with our Heavenly Father to not have any desire or any will other than His. And He didn't make us like that. Now, if we had an earthly father, and just think about a, a random metaphorical earthly father for a moment, who every time a child made a choice, the father overrode them and said, no, don't do that, do this. To the point where into adulthood, the child continued to say, hey, dad, what should I do? And the father would just tell them, right back to the toilet paper again. No, don't buy that toilet paper, you should buy this one. It's three-ply, it's smooth. I don't know, I'm going to go into a toilet paper ad and I don't really need to do that. What would we call that? As well as annoying. <laughs> that, that would be a highly dysfunctional father, would it not? That even into adulthood has to micromanage and control every choice that that child makes. Is God a dysfunctional father? I think not. Now, let, let me take this a step further. What do we call an authority figure that continually violates the will of another person? Yeah, we call them an abuser. At worst, yeah, at best it's dysfunctional again. At worst, it's actually abusive. To continually violate the will of another person is actually abusive. And again, somehow we have this view that God has this attribute of he will do what he wants with me and he will control me and have control. And God's going, I don't want control. I want intimacy. I want to know you. I, I want to look you in the eye and, and I want there to be an exchange of desire between us. In other words, he wants adult children. We never lose that childlike wonder, that childlike awe and that, that childlike innocent abandon of when he walks in the room, we scream out, Daddy. We never lose that. But that doesn't mean that we don't have a will. Even a two-year-old running up to their dad when they come home from work at the end of the day has a will. And usually that will involves some form of hug, some form of tickle, rumble, some form of contact and exchange of intimacy in that moment. So where we're getting to here is God is not the kind of God that violates the will of his children because that would put him in the abusive category. He's just not like that. 
Now, just in case any of you parents are going, but hang on a sec, if I can't violate my child's will, how do I discipline them? That, that question is going around in your head. Firstly, read Danny Silk's book, Loving Our Kids on Purpose, and you'll get some really good answers on that one. Um, there is leadership, there is discipline, but it's always exercised in a way where a child has options. Example that Danny uses quite a lot. It's really, it's really simple. Choice, fun to be with or room. Now, just as a little clue, I've tried to pull that yeah, for myself. Okay, yeah, Daddy's not fun to be with right now. Daddy's going off to his room. And Deb's like, oh, no, you don't. You get back here right now. I'm like, it's worth a try. Fun to be with or room? And they're still like, okay, well, that, that doesn't seem like fun. It seems like you've chosen room. Well, I'm not going. Okay. So we, we had fun to be with or room, choice number one. Seems like they're choosing room by virtue of their actions. All right, off to your room. No. Is this familiar to anyone at all? Yeah, yeah okay. This is you being sent to your room still? Oh, no. This is... Okay, so do you want to go with your feet touching the ground or feet not touching the ground? <laughs> See, you're powerful. You still have another choice. Like feet touching the ground means you walk. Feet not touching the ground means I pick you up and I place you in there. It's a little hard with Josh these days because he's bigger than me, but anyway. And then they go, and then they're like, well, neither. Well, I still have another choice. Well, do you want to decide or do I decide? I'll know what you've chosen in 10 seconds. Because if you don't tell me in 10 seconds, you're going to tell me that I'm deciding. Now, there's three sets of options all the way and all the way to that room. They're powerful. But they're still being led. Okay, not violating the will doesn't mean boundaryless, but it does mean the presence of options because... We want to raise children that are empowered to make good choices. And one of the definitions of littleness is we tend to not make great choices just because we don't have that ability yet. It's, something that, it's an ability that we have to learn. And parents that rescue their kids and make too many decisions for them as they get older end up raising children that are really insecure, anxious, and lack confidence because they don't know how to deal with the world because they've never learned to make choices. That's not the point of this message. Now, why am I saying all of this? So what we're getting to is God created us with a will and he wants it engaged. Jesus engaged people's will. He wants to engage our will, our desire, our choices. He didn't make us puppets and he's not going to violate our will. Now, let me pick up on where we went last week because we talked about the things that war against love. And I want to pick up on the concept of vows and judgments again. And by the time we've rounded this thing around, you're going to start to see why sometimes our life bears the fruit that it does all the while we're thinking, God, where the heck are you? Why didn't you stop this? This is where I'm heading. So God won't violate our will. Let, let, let's, let's, let's keep that as a, a really key point here. Now, we all have bad experiences in life. And this is where we talked into last week. As a result of bad experiences, as a result of pain, as a result of love, affection and worth being attached to all the wrong things, as a result of a- absent or distorted love, as a result of painful experiences in life, we make judgments about people and about things And we make vows to protect ourselves from those things happening again. So, for example, let's say a girl has an abusive father. And as a result of that trauma, 
that girl judges all men as untrustworthy. Now, that's a really understandable judgment given the stuff that has taken place. And the younger that that happens, the more significant that judgment becomes um, simply because you don't have the ability to evaluate. You just know this is not safe, this doesn't feel right, yet they're, especially if they're mum or dad, they're the one that set what normal is. And so it's a horribly confusing scenario. But what they learn is that this person isn't safe, but then judge all men or all particularly male authority figures as unsafe in order to protect from further pain. And then a vow gets made, either consciously or unconsciously, I will never let a man close to me again. I will never let a man control me because I've learned from experience that when a man controls me, bad things happen. So I make a vow, I will never let that happen again. Then it comes to a point where the girl wants to actually be in a loving relationship, wants to get married. And that is the desire of their heart. And yet because of this judgment or vow that is still in operation, they push them away at every turn or run away from the very thing that they say that they want and yet don't understand. Why do I do this? I want this more than anything, yet every time it comes near me, I push it away. And then if it goes even further, sometimes they start saying things like, well, obviously God hasn't opened that door for me yet. God hasn't brought that person into my life yet. We use good spiritual language around it. And then if it gets fully developed, God, why won't you act here? Where are you? And it's very simply because if he were to violate that girl's will, he would be abusing her all over again. And her will is still stuck in the declaration and that vow, I will never let a man close to me. I will never let a man control me again. Are we making sense? This could happen with a boy, with a mother, a boy, with a father. This could happen, you know, any gender mix whatsoever. Um, let's, Let's say a bad experience with a controlling or a micromanaging boss or, God forbid, even a leader in a church. I know that never happens. I know leaders in churches never get controlling. I know that's, that's complete anathema to most people. But let's say for the sake of this example, let, let's use it anyway, just because it's so far removed from reality. Yeah. So let's say that this controlling micromanagement of a boss, a leader, actually wounded me, which control typically does. Control is no fun. Should be sent off to room but because they're in control, they don't think they're controlling, so they stay out of their room and keep controlling. Now, the typical protective response to an event like that is to say, I will never give someone that level of control over my life again. I judge authority is unsafe, and I say, I, will, I make a vow, I will never... Because the vows always start with an I will never or an I'll show you. You know, when someone says, you'll never amount to anything, and you go, well, I'll show you, that's a vow. And it might sound healthy, but you're still attached to that event. Your actions are still being dictated to by that event, even if you're trying to run in the opposite direction. 
So when I say that I make a vow, I will never allow myself to be controlled again. Now, where that will bear fruit is that any time a genuine leader in my life, whether this be in the workplace, whether this be in church, whether this be in a family, any time a leader exercises genuine leadership or actually walks in the authority that God has given them, it touches that control, room, control wound and I interpret that genuine action as control because I have a wound and a vow in that area. Now, does this mean that leaders don't get controlling and it's all the followers' fault? I, I, I think by now we've been around long enough to know that that's not totally true. Leaders get controlling. We, it's, it's just, it happens. But when I have an unhealed wound in that area, my discernment gets defiled. And I actually become unable to respond genuinely to any kind of leadership or authority. And this is where church wounds are typically at play. Now, our will is empowered to a point that we are given authority on the earth and that authority actually means something. We are given authority on the earth. You know, back, right back in Genesis chapter 1, where God said, you know, he gave us dominion over the earth and over all of the, all of the stuff. He actually gave us authority on the earth. So that authority means something. Now, if we use that authority with our will to align with something of the enemy, and typically in this instance, it's, it's a spirit of fear. I fear being controlled. I fear being hurt. I fear being abused. And these are all reasonable fears, just like the fear of a spider is an entirely reasonable fear, 100%. You know, I saw a spider and I got a tissue and I very, very carefully burnt the house down. <laughs> That's the way to deal with a spider. You know, blowtorch, anything like that, perfect way to deal with a spider. All I'm saying, it's a reasonable fear given the things that we've had. But if those fears remain unprocessed, we end up with us aligning our will with a spirit of fear and that never goes well. Because fear causes us to move away from the things that we really want. So the reason that we need to undo these inner vows and judgments the judgments that lead to the vows is because in our life, we are often bearing fruit that we don't like. And we're frustrated, we're annoyed, and sometimes we're even angry at God about it. And going, God, where are you? Why aren't you doing anything? And it's because he's actually a good father that he's not violating your will. Because the declarations you make around those vows have spiritual authority and power. Now, this doesn't mean that God doesn't grieve when he sees this stuff play out. This doesn't mean God doesn't wish something different for us. Of course he does. And quite often he wants to lovingly confront us, whether that be directly through scripture, through speaking to us or through another person. Yet the more pain I have, unprocessed pain I have, the more that place in my heart becomes fortified and any approach to get near that thing and to challenge it usually gets met with some pretty hefty resistance. Often in the form of an argument. How dare you suggest that X, Y and Z? 
Anything that suggests that starts with "How dare you?" usually is offence, and usually is something has touched a fortified place. Yet sometimes we genuinely don't know that we've made those vows until we get into a situation, a ministry session. A time like this where God starts revealing stuff to us. And all I know is the moment I become aware, that's when I want to do something about it. The moment I become aware of vows that I've made. The moment I remember very, very clearly driving along in my car and I was listening to a Danny Silk podcast. I can't even remember what it was about. I just remember where it was. And I remember the revelation that I had was, oh, my gosh, I have a gaping fear of control, as in fear of being controlled. And it's like, you know those moments you have when the aha moment, the light switches on and you can see, all of a sudden I can go, oh, that explains that. That explains how, why I reacted to, Which meant, okay, A, I've got some messes I now now need to go and clean up because the way that I reacted to that, that was because of me, not because of them. And then you go, okay, God, I've made this vow. I will not be controlled like that again. Usually that comes back to a situation and someone I need to forgive while we're at it. But the moment I become aware is the time to go, okay, I'm going to make a different choice. More on that in a moment. But undoing these inner vows and the judgments that lead to them are important because a lot of the time we blame God for things that are actually a direct result of the vows and declarations that we ourselves have made. And because he's a good father, he won't violate our will. He actually honours our will. He honours what we align ourselves with. Elijah House has this great saying, which is the ministry training stuff that we've just been through, um, and that is, where there's fruit, there's a root. It's a brilliant saying. Where there is fruit, there is a root. Wherever, if there is fruit that's being born in your life somewhere that you don't like, there is a root somewhere, and it usually comes back to some form of pain which has resulted in a judgment, which has resulted in a vow that is now playing out and it's the most natural thing to do to self-protect but the problem with self-protection strategies, they may work in the short term but in the long term they've got a whole lot of side effects. The side effect of saying I will never allow myself to be hurt like that again is I will never allow myself to be loved again, for example. I like to say it like this. My world is perfectly organised to produce the set of results I'm currently experiencing. When I say I like to say it like this, I actually hate it because it makes me deeply responsible for my own life and it means if there's fruit being born somewhere in my life that I'd really like to blame someone else for, I actually can't. And some days that really sucks because there are some days you just want to pin it on someone else. But no, my life internally is perfectly organised to produce the set of results I'm experiencing externally. Because my life is the sum total of my decisions, my actions, my vows, my judgments. It, and, um, I think I've asked the question before. You know, If your entire inner world suddenly became manifested and became a city in which you live, what would that look like? It would look exactly like what you're living in right now. 
the good, the bad, and the ugly. All of it. It's all there. Because we live from the inside out. Now, this is the point where I make myself accountable for the decisions I've made with my will. And as I become aware of these vows and judgments that I no longer agree with, I've now got authority in Christ to break those things. But I have to do that because we have a good dad who's not an abuser. He will not violate our will. So how do we process? Because as we know, some, so much of the vows, judgments that we have made come from painful experiences. So what do we do with that stuff? How, how do we actually begin to undo some of these things? Well, I want to suggest there's probably three on-ramps, three possibilities in terms of where you can start this journey. And... <laughs> When I say three, you know, you can, it's not like you can only choose one on-ramp. Sometimes there's a couple of them and we, you, know, you look at a couple simultaneously. So we're in a bit of a multi-dimensional world, unlike a freeway where there's only one. You know what I mean? I don't have to keep going here. So here's the, the on-ramps. I can start with the fruit that's being born in my life. So if there's fruit being born in my life, you know, I, I have relationships that can seem to be continually toxic. I, I seem to experience rejection all the time. Um, I seem to find myself in high conflict way too much. Um, I seem to shut down. Whatever it is, whatever there, there is a fruit, we can start with the fruit and we can work our way back and we can find the root. That, that's, that's one way to start. And sometimes that involves sitting down and actually, you know, sitting down with a piece of paper, a journal, a whiteboard, a something in the presence of God and going, where, where else? You know, I, I don't like this particular piece of fruit in my life, but just so that I'm really understanding what is going on, I want to see, is this bearing fruit somewhere else? Like, is there a pattern of this in my world? Now, it's important to do this in the presence of the Spirit, because if you do it in the presence of the accuser, this is going to feel really crap. Doing it in the presence of the Holy Spirit, this is illuminating, revealing, and freeing. Doing it in the presence of the accuser sucks. That's a Greek word for bad. So I can start with the fruit, and I want to get really in touch with, hang on, this is not the only time this has happened. When else have I felt like this? Where else has this situation played out? That, that's the on-ramp of starting with fruit. I can start with another on-ramp, which is asking the question, what was love, affection and worth attached to in my family of origin in my growing up years? We talked about that a little bit last week. Most of our brokenness comes down to either absent or distorted love or immature love. We also talked about that. What was love, affection, and worth attached to growing up? Well, I got lots of love and affection when I got good marks. And when I didn't, they didn't pay much attention to me. Well, that tells me that love, affection, and worth is attached to my performance. So when I'm performing, I feel awesome. And so I keep trying to perform <laughs> to get the, the hit, if you like, of love and affection. But when I don't perform, I feel re rejected. And therefore, I develop a deep fear of failure. Love, affection, and worth was attached to being nice when I just went along with everything and didn't really have an opinion. This is often where we learn to check our will out, incidentally. 
Just, just be nice. And any time that I, I speak up and actually express a need, that gets looked down upon. But any time I just go with the flow, it's all just really cool. And so I learn, in order to get love and affection, don't have a will, don't have an opinion, just, just, just fit in, just blend in. What was love, affection, and worth attached to growing up? So you can use the on-ramp of what's the fruit that's being born in my life. I can use the fruit of what is love, affection, and worth attached to growing up. Or I can use the on-ramp of what are my strongest emotional experiences and start there. What are my strongest emotional experiences? Because your strongest emotional experiences program you neurologically. And they're usually the places we make the vows and the judgments in order to protect ourselves. Three possible on-ramps. Anytime we're doing ministry with someone, I always know I've got these three possible choices. We can either start with what's bearing fruit in your life. Let's work back. We can know that there's a whole lot of fruit and we can start, okay, talk to me. What was love, affection and worth attached to in your family of origin? And I have a bunch of different questions that I use to get there often when I don't want people to know exactly what I'm going for. Um, in order to get around that defensive, don't touch that part. Because everyone actually wants to go there and deal with it. They're just not always aware because of fortification around pain. Um, what was love, affection, worth attached to growing up? We can start there or we can go, okay, let's actually, let's actually do a, what I call a pain map of your life. What are, you, what are your strongest negative emotional experiences? And let's actually have a look at each of those. And let's, let's in the presence of God, let's go, let's not re-traumatise you by... by by reliving them, but let's actually look at them kind of from the outside in the presence of God and let's start to get an understanding of how did I respond to that and what were the vows that I made? What were the choices that I made? And here's a couple of questions that you can ask yourself. And if, you, if you're a diary person, a journal person, as in, this is some good questions to ask yourself and start writing about. So when I look at these, when I look at any of these things, Ask yourself the question, where is the pain from that experience and what have I done with it? Because if the answer is lock the box, shove it in, then it's actually still in there. And sometimes the reason why you react to things the way that you do is because someone pokes at your box and you don't want that thing to open because you don't want to feel the feelings that that felt because it's painful. So where is the pain and what have I done with that? That's the first question. The second one is, what beliefs or judgments did I develop because of that pain? What did I start to believe about myself? What did I start to believe about God? What did I start to believe about life, the world, others, men, women, authority? What did I begin to believe as a result of those things? And then what vows did I make to protect myself from more pain? Those simple questions can be deeply, deeply confronting, but so freeing when we start to see that the decisions that we've made back there, which are totally understandable, no judgment whatsoever on anyone for making those, that's, that's, that's what we do to protect but when those remain unprocessed healthily, those vows remain in play and start to bear fruit in our life in ways that we usually don't like. And because God is not an abusive dad, he won't violate our will. 
He will lovingly bring us to a place to confront that thing and then say, what do you want to do with that? Um, I had a, a coaching client in the business this week and um, it must have been yeah, a, a God thing and yet yeah, she's, she's not a Christian at this point. Um, but she had all sorts of fruit being born in her life, um, perfectionism, constantly exhausted. Yet this is a senior leader, absolutely brilliant, bright as anything, like IQ through the roof, absolutely brilliant, you know, has been pinned by her company as, um, you know, with succession opportunity. In other words, you know, she's going to, she's been, what's the word I'm looking for? Slated for higher roles in the future. Groomed, that's a good, yeah, that's in the best possible way. She's been groomed for higher roles. She's an absolute gun. And yet there's fruit. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. I'm perfectionistic. Numerous other things. And we started on a journey of, okay, let's look at where did we learn this? Where did this come from? Where did you learn that your value and worth is attached to what you do? And that brought up a whole lot of stuff. And um, the previous session to this one, we... um, we got to a point where an incident had happened in her life that was really messing with her head. And I said, all right, let's put aside what we were planning to do today and let's work through this one. So we got a massive sheet of paper out, all sorts of different coloured pens, and we just started getting what was in her out of her. And she said, okay, what, let, let's name all of the emotions. And she just started writing. There was probably 10 or 12 different emotions that she felt. Okay, which ones out of that are the strongest? What are the top three? She picked those and we pulled them over here and then we go, okay, when else have you felt those emotions? Oh, oh, actually, that emotion goes way back. When was the first time you felt that emotion? Oh, that goes way back to here. Okay, what did you decide back here? Oh, I decided I will never let that happen to me again. Okay, so how has that played out in your life? Well, it shut me down from this. It has protected me from that in all the wrong kind of ways and so on we went. Now, she was very anti-journaling. She's like, I hate journaling. She's actually an accountant by background. She loves spreadsheets. Hates journaling. It's like, that's what weird people do. But the moment that we started getting this stuff out with all the different colours on this piece of paper and it started making sense, she started breaking agreement with some of these choices and vows that she had made and started undoing them. And um, I sent her a message a couple of weeks after we did that session and said, how are you doing? And she said... Actually, I'm doing amazingly well. I've gone and bought myself a journal. I've even got coloured pens. And all the stuff that we did has just broken something off me. Not a Christian. (laughs) Has broken something off me. I can see things clearly. And there's a whole lot of stuff around me that still really sucks, but it's just not affecting me like it used to. And then we had another session during this week. And as I left, she said to me, you're making me awesome. (laughs) Like, I'm not doing that, you already were, but now you've just discovered it. But in other words, such breakthrough came from simply getting what was in her, out of her, seeing it all for what it was. Realising, you know, I've taken so much responsibility for this person in my life and their choices and their choices have dropped a whole lot of shame on me. But I've all of a sudden realised she's a separate person. Why does, that, why does what she does have to impact me? And... She feel like broke the soul tie, separated herself from that, and now that person's still making some really dumb choices, but it's just like, I know what my responsibility is. That's not my problem anymore. 
the vows, the judgments all started to get undone and all of a sudden she is seen clearly and then she turns up to a work meeting where that is, she said, this meeting was going to hell really, really fast and everyone was freaking out and she said, I was just cool. My part, I delivered my part. It went awesome and my boss who is not high on compliments all the time came to me afterwards and said, you really nailed that. What happened there? That was amazing. So the fruit is starting to change. All there is a result, and this is for those of you who say, I don't like journaling, she didn't either. But actually going through those sets of questions, you may need to get the podcast and write them down again. Going through those set of questions, getting it out in front of you so that you can see it objectively out there and inviting the Holy Spirit to be a part of that process is so ridiculously powerful because you start to untangle yourself from all of those judgments that I've made. Wow, I judged all men as being like that. Is that actually true? No, that person was, yes, but to broaden that to all men are like that? Okay, that's not working for me, for example. So, there's some stuff to take away and to process. And you've got January, okay? We're not going to deliver any new content. In January, we're going to worship, we're going to have fun, we're going to swim, we're going to have barbecues. Okay, we're going to come together and worship, minister to each other. We're going to go and eat and drink and be merry. That's January. No new content, but you've got homework in the nicest possible way. It's not compulsory and there's no exam. (laughs) Only the option of more freedom on the other side. And that is to simply start. Pick one of those on-ramps. And start to invite the Holy Spirit into that process. Now, here's where I want to land. Way too many of us live with a checked out will. And the way that that checked out will manifests is this thing called learned powerlessness or learned helplessness. We know we're in learned helplessness when we start to say things like, you know, like, well, God hasn't opened that door yet. Or in other words, I ascribe the the cause of that to something or someone outside of myself, which leaves me completely powerless to do anything, to move towards what I want. Or if someone asks me what I want, my answer is I don't know. That's a checked out will. That's a disengaged will. And so I said, when someone or something outside of me hasn't acted in a way that I want and therefore I am stuck and that's just the way it is, that's a checked out will. And so I I numb, I cope or I self-medicate in order to survive that. That's a checked out will. And when my will is checked out, what I've done in spirit is I've laid down my authority and I am easy picking off for the enemy because I'm not in my authority. And he will come and mess with here and here in all sorts of ways because we've left all the doors and windows open because we're not in our authority. It's time to pick up our will and to say, to actually allow the Father, Jesus, the Spirit, to look us in the eye and say, what do you want? What what are you born for? What are you created to manifest on this earth? Who who are you really? What do you want? What do you desire? And for in that exchange of intimacy, 
We're not saying, you know, O Lord, or where do you live? Or I want what you want, Lord. No, I'm saying, actually, I have a will, I have a desire, and I want to co-labor with you in seeing this thing manifested. And that might be as simple as the way that I'm raising my kids through to changing the entire course of world history and anything in between. The point is, I actually have a will. Let's stand. I want to pray for us. Okay, I want us all to shut our eyes because I want to give us I want to give you some privacy as we do this for just a moment. And this is one of those moments where if we're going to check our will back in, our will needs to be engaged in this process. So I want everyone's eyes shut. And if you, as we've talked today, have come to the realization either completely or at least to some degree, my my own personal will has been checked out. I want you to raise your hand, but only if you're saying, I want it to check back in as well. And the reason I'm getting you to do something is because I want your will engaged in this process. Keep every eye shut. I want to give you privacy here, but I want, I want your will engaged. Okay, you can drop your hands. Thank you. Bless you. Now, I'm going to pray. I'm going to give you a moment to pray. And then I'll probably pray again. So, Father, I want to speak as the father of this house over every will present in this room. And I want to speak validation to your will. I want to speak validation to your unique voice, to your unique desires. And I want to speak permission to have your own will to have your own desires. And where wills have been defiled through abuse or shut down because of pain, I want to speak cleansing of that defilement of the will now in Jesus' name. I want to release, I just release the blood of Jesus to cleanse that will. A little package warning. As you, if, you, if you check your will back in, in the short term, you're possibly setting yourself up for a bit of internal conflict. Because when you check that thing back in, it's going to come right up against all your protection strategies, your coping strategies, and all of those things that you've been doing to survive. And that may cause a little unrest, and you may be tempted to put a picture of me on your dartboard at some point in time. Because I was doing fine before, and now I'm feeling all this conflict. All I'm saying... <laughs> other than trying to keep my own picture off a dartboard, is that's actually a normal and it's a step forward. It's not a step backward. Because all of a sudden you're engaged again and you're realising all of these defence and protection strategies and you, the two are at war. Now you get to choose who wins because you have a will. 
So I want to speak to those wills that have been subjected, that have been under, under the weight of pain, that have been under the, the weight of religious deception that says it's godly to not have a will. I just break that deception right now in the name of Jesus and I prophetically pull into your will and I pull it to the surface and I give it permission to engage in the name of Jesus. I give it permission to engage in the name of Jesus. Now know this, your will is like a muscle. If it hasn't been exercised, it will be weak. The only way to start to get strength in a weak muscle is to actually use it. Start small, start safe, choose your own toilet paper. (laughs) Whatever that means for you, metaphorically. But you need to start to engage it. And sometimes the safest place is within the confines of your own journal that no one else has to see. Because it takes the fear of rejection right out of that. So I pull your will to the surface now prophetically in Jesus' name and I give it permission to engage. I speak strength to it in the name of Jesus. And I call you in to an intimate relationship with the Father where there is a genuine exchange of desire where there is a genuine into me I let you see, where he lets you see into his heart, but, you, but he sees into yours and sees your dreams and sees your desires. You know the temple that David built, as you read scripture, that temple was something that was on the heart of David more than it was on the heart of God. David was in a, interested in a temple. God was interested in David. And so he empowered what David wanted and empowered him to build that. But that was something that was born in the heart of David. What's born in your heart? It has permission to live. You have permission to dream and to engage him in that process. And Father, as we do that, we give you permission to surface the vows, to surface the judgments, to surface the protection strategies that we've used to keep us safe so that we can break them. And above all, we thank you that you're a good dad. You're not an abusive dad. You're a good dad. You don't violate our will. Now we want to bring our will alive and become intimate with you. So just take a second and then we'll finish. Just take a second, especially those of you who have responded, just engage for just like 45 seconds. Just engage with the Father. Just say, and repent of letting your will check out. Just say, I'm calling my will back into engagement again. And Father, show me how. Lead me. Teach me. Now, I'm really aware in some of the subjects that I've talked about that they can be really triggering for some people. And I just, if you're feeling triggered, I just want to speak peace to you. I want to say you're in a safe place right now. And I release the love of our Heavenly Father, the love of Jesus, and the presence and power of the Holy Spirit to surround you so that you feel safe, so that you feel contained. 
and so that you feel hope and release healing in Jesus' name. I release hope in Jesus' name. Where we felt powerless and stuck, I release hope for things to be different. Yeah, thank you that you're a good dad. Lead us on this journey, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And just as I prayed, I'm really aware that some of those subjects could be really triggering for some people. And um, if you need someone to just sit with you, pray with you right now, if I can ask our core team people um, who are around, if you can just kind of hang around up here, uh, up toward the front, just so that if anyone needs prayer, a hug, something in the form of some love with skin on, that you have that available to you as well. Bless you. And we'll see you next week. Amen.